Let's begin with prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are life, life eternal. And it is unto that life that you draw and invite us. A life greater than the life we enjoy even now. A life greater than the life that was given to man in the state of his perfection. It is the life which is present before your very face. And so we ask you to set our hearts and our eyes and our whole being upon that life upon your Son, who is the life incarnate, whom to know is life eternal. Bless us with the knowledge of that life, even this evening, in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Now, for any of you who may have read chapter 25, uh, before you came or are familiar <clears throat> with this story, is there anything that strikes you as you uh, remember it or as you read over it? Anything that strikes you about David in the 25th chapter? Okay. I'm very hot-headed. He's very hot-headed. <clears throat> Go ahead, Gay. Ready to kill, kill quickly. Now, d- does that seem unlike him? I just, maybe I want him to be more thoughtful. <laughs> yeah, because before it was uh, Goliath, who was God's enemy. Okay, what about the previous chapter? What about chapter 24? He's merciful to Saul, and yet, as Kay says, he's hot-headed to not be merciful to Nabal, right? And so uh, this chapter definitely seems that David is being unlike David and forms a contrast, or at least an apparent contrast, between his character in chapter 24 and his character here potentially in Chapter 25. Well then, if David is out of character apparently here in 25, why does the narrator include the story? Well, perhaps he wants to show us Abigail. Perhaps he wants to show us uh, David under the influence of Abigail, not doing what he first intended to do. David being uh, turned aside from being a hot head, to uh, paraphrase Kay, and therefore the moral to this story is Abigail entreated and David relented. Well, uh, if that is the moral of the story, then, of course, we don't need 
1 Samuel 25 to inform us of good moral tales. We could read Aesop's fables or we could read any of the moral uh, books of the, uh, the world, uh, ancient or modern. Scripture is not moralistic, and consequently our narrator is not giving us a moral tale. Point of this story is not that a fair damsel is delivered from a wicked ogre and marries Prince Charming to live happily ever after. This is not a morality tale. Scripture is revelational. That is, it is God-disclosing. It is revealing God. It is not primarily focused on man himself. It is focused upon God and his glory. That, in fact, is the testimony of our Reformed faith, whether it's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, whether it's Calvin's own uh, motto, but uh, it is the consistent testimony of all Calvinists that the uh, purpose of Scripture, the purpose of man, is to glorify God. In addition, Scripture is biblical theological or redemptive historical. That is, it is revealing God by revealing his acts and his words. Word and deed self-disclosure of God. Word and deed revelation of God. And that in history unfolding as an organic continuum in the plan of redemption. This chapter fits into the ongoing redemptive historic continuum of God's plan of redemption, his history of salvation. So we realize as we come to 1 Samuel 25 that there is something deeper here than the moral triumph of Abigail and her marriage to the king-elect of Israel. Do we therefore have a clue to what that deeper something is in the narrative literary strategy? Do you see anything in our narrator's narrative strategy which suggests more than the moral to the story? As you ponder that for a moment, I want you to remember what we uh, did when we asked Kay to think about the previous chapter. Does our narrator have a literary structure in which he places chapter 25 after chapter 24, and he is doing so not for moralistic purposes, but he is doing so for deeper biblical theological purposes? <clears throat> what has he done in chapter 24? He has demonstrated David sparing Saul's life. Is there anywhere else that he will do that? Is there anywhere else that he will spare Saul's life? And where is that? Chapter 26. All right, so do you see a pattern? We have chapter 24 in which David spares Saul's life. We have chapter 26, in which David spares Saul's life. And 25 is sandwiched. 
It is framed between the two parallel narratives of David sparing Saul's life. Here, he spares Nabal's life. So the overall structural motif is David spares life, all right? But he spares Saul's life twice, and he spares Nabal's life after being persuaded that he should spare it. And the persuasion comes from the central climax of chapter 25, which is in fact verse 29 that we'll look at in detail later on. All right, I have suggested then that the narrator's strategy is a revelation of God's life displayed in the life of David. In chapter 24, David, in union with the life of heaven, will touch not the Lord's anointed. Reflecting upon the passage in Psalm 105, verse 15, which is duplicated in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, 22, he will grant life by touching not the Lord's anointed, even anointed Saul. And he will not touch that life because his life is in union with the life-giving Lord of heaven. In chapter 26, he duplicates that that parrot. He frames the mercy of David as the mercy of God himself. Our narrator demonstrates that the life of God's mercy is revealed in the mercy David reveals. Now, the story in chapter 25 and the transition point, as I indicated, verse 29 of chapter 25, that David's life or David's soul may be bundled with a bundle of the living with the Lord his God. This is an extremely important verse to what our narrator narrator is doing and what Abigail herself recognized. David's life bundled with the life of the Lord his God. This realization causes David to pause. This realization causes him to reflect. This realization causes him to realize that his life is in the arena of the life of God, and he cannot, he cannot murder Nabal as if he were an imitator of Saul and not an imitator of the Lord and of the Lord's life. And so chapter 25 opens with the death of Samuel and in so opening raises the question of another deeper theological significance. We have dealt with the broad apparent tension or contrast between chapter 25 and chapter 24. We have noticed that it is, in fact, the pivot point of a threefold narrative paradigm. But the narrator opens chapter 25 with the death of Samuel and drives us once again to consider the significance of Samuel, his place in the history of redemption, as well as the significance of his death. The death of Samuel is the passing of an era. The old is gone The former era has passed away. 
the new has come, a new era has dawned, and that transition, that movement from the old or the former era to the new or the era of the age to come, which is now appearing, is the transition between the theocracy and the monarchy. The monarchy is established with the coming of David in particular. The old age of the theocratic judges is over. Samuel is the end of the judges. He is the last of the theocratic judges of Israel. And a new age has dawned with the anointing of the kings of Israel. A sovereign king has come into the history of redemption, and Samuel's disappearance from the narrative leaves David. David and his elect prominence central to the ongoing unfolding of the drama of the Lord's kingdom, the Lord's king in the Lord's kingdom. So the passing of Samuel takes the stage uh, a light away from him if any light was left on him and places that spotlight full force on David, who has been the elect of the Lord since his anointing in chapter 16, and now will rise to prominence as the monarchy rises to prominence. We have talked about this upward spiral of David's career, and that upward spiral is now going to catch the monarchy and draw it upward with itself, which means that the theocracy of the era of the judges And that which was even before the judges, the theocratic era, has been left behind. There is, therefore, even within the Old Testament uh, development of the history of redemption, a transition away from theocracy to something better, to monarchy. There is a movement to a better era, namely the era in which God will place a king upon the throne of Israel. He will not rule theocratically. That is, through charismatic judges or through, shall we say, mosaic legislators. The theocracy is over. So this is David's story. And Samuel is now off stage and removed from the story. It is not even Saul's story, though he bears the the crown of a king of Israel. So the transition not only shifts from one redemptive historical era to another, from theocracy to monarchy, it shifts from one monarch to another, from the rejected to the elected. We saw this shift displayed even before Samuel, in front of Samuel in chapter 16, when Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, passes in front of Samuel as a second Saul. Remember, Samuel was drawn to think that Eliab, the first one of the sons to come in front of him, was like, was the king that God had elected because he was tall of stature, just like Saul. So Samuel thinks that a second Saul is before him, but the Lord rejects him and rejects the mirror of Saul as he has rejected Saul himself for the new man, 
the man of his heart, the shepherd king, the elect and chosen of the Lord. The transition in this redemptive historic paradigm even catches Samuel up. It catches him up in in Jesse's household where he is forced by God's decree to pass over those who look to be imitators of Saul. A shift in redemptive history is continued in a shift in royal election. Royal election and rejection. Monarchy, not theocracy. David, not Saul. These are parallel paradigms, and they are reinforced staccato-like here in the opening verse of 1 Samuel 25. Chapter 25 then features the Lord's elect and the confirmation of the passing away of the old. Samuel dies with a narrative drama. Will David, like Eliab, be the mirror of Saul? Will the life of the Lord God in David reveal itself through David? Chapter 25 is sandwiched to answer this question. You see, what is before us and what the narrator pivotally, pivotally places before us is chapter 25. Will David be a second Saul? And do to Nabal what Saul wants to do to him. Murder him. All right, now if you'll take a look at your map, you'll notice that the scene or location of this narrative opens in the first verse at Ramah, at the top of your map where Samuel lived, died, and was buried. Notice that phrase in the first verse, all Israel gathers at Ramah. Does David go to the funeral? Does David go as a part of all Israel to Ramah? You'll notice that David arose and went down. No, David does not go to the funeral of Samuel. He does not dare go to the funeral of Samuel. For if he goes to the funeral of Samuel, he will be seized by Saul or by the Israel which belongs to Saul, and he will therefore be captured. David, in contrast, continues as a fugitive and must flee even Samuel's burial. Now, in this verse, the Masoretic text, which is the foundational Hebrew text of the Old Testament, reads, as many of your English translation reads, David went down, did not go up to Ramah. He went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, that presents a slight geographical problem. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, translates that phrase, the wilderness of Maon, the wilderness of Maon, which places David in the vicinity of the ensuing drama. If you've read chapter 25, you know that David is going to be in the wilderness of Maon in this chapter. 
And so the Septuagint simply translates his descent to that wilderness. Now, the wilderness of Paran is farther south, farther south of anything on your map because it is the northern border of the Sinai Peninsula, south of the wilderness of Judah on your map, and therefore too distant for proximity to the ensuing drama. If David is all the way down on the northern edge of the Sinai Peninsula, then he is far, far away from Ma'on and the wilderness of Ziph, as you can see from your map. Now, some maintaining the primacy of the Masoretic text or the original Hebrew version have suggested that there is a Paran wilderness in the region of Ma'on. In other words, there is a smaller desert called the wilderness of Paran near Ma'on. The difficulty here is that this would be the only mention of such a small desert wasteland in the entire Old Testament. Now, here is where a uh, tracing out of the geographical sequence may help us resolve this potential geographical dilemma. You will notice the sequences which commence in chapter 23, verse 15. In that verse, the wilderness of Ziph is highlighted. Then the next location that we have is Ma'on in chapter 23, verse 24. Next comes En Gedi, chapter 23, verse 29, on the west side of the Dead Sea. And then comes Ma'on again in chapter 25, verse 2 to be balanced by chapter 26, verse 2, and the wilderness of Ziph. Notice the sequence. It's exactly symmetrical. From Ziph to Ma'on to En Gedi to Ma'on to Ziph. That geographical balance, that geographical balance of David's movements then suggests that there is another wilderness of Paran in this region. That is, this region around Ma'on and the wilderness of Ziph. And that, in fact, the Septuagint translation is an accurate commentary on the location of the wilderness of Paran, though not an accurate translation of the Hebrew text. Now, you may say this is a minor matter. Nonetheless, it is an interesting uh, study in what the versions give us and consequently reminds us that the deeper study of the Scripture will include the study of the related versions of the Scriptures. How is it that the Septuagint reads the Hebrew text? How is it that the Peshitta, which is the Syriac version, reads the Hebrew text? How is it that even Qumran reads the Hebrew text? How is it that Jerome, for instance, the translator of the Bible into Latin, the Vulgate, how does he read the Hebrew text? Because he goes to Bethlehem to study Hebrew so he can actually translate the Bible from Hebrew into Latin. How do the versions help us understand the original Hebrew text? Here's a case in which the Septuagint is actually acting like a commentary on a geographical location though it has not translated the Hebrew text accurately. It gives us proper location and alerts us to the fact that there was another wilderness of Paran north of the Sinai Desert. 
Well, that little difficulty, <clears throat> which may or may not be easily resolved by my commentary, my, my own commentary, uh, <clears throat> does not present a problem in verse 2 with the man of my own, whose business is in Carmel. And you'll notice from the map <clears throat> that uh, city of Carmel is not the Carmel that you might think uh, is Carmel, unless you attempt to associate this Carmel here with Mount Carmel, uh, north and west of our location, and the famous location of Elijah's confrontation with the priest of Baal. Do not confuse the two. <clears throat> this Carmel is not Mount Carmel, which is up on the northwestern, <clears throat> in the northwestern region of uh, Israel, uh, distant from this location. Though you may remember that Mount Carmel because of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And perhaps you also remember that confrontation powerfully dramatized in Felix Mendelssohn's magnificent oratorio, Elijah. His musical recreation of that contest on Mount Carmel is hair-raising hair-raising and deafening, deafening with silence. The silence which follows the cries, the choral cries of the priests of Baal. It is not only magnificent oratorio, it is magnificent theology. Mendelssohn understands the drama, the theological drama of the text because he was a second-generation Jewish convert to Christianity. Not only did he rediscover Johann Sebastian Bach, but he writes his own tributes to the scriptures that he loves. Well, if you're not familiar with Mendelssohn's Elijah, then you're really uneducated, and I would suggest that you immediately get an education and listen up. Uh, you go on the Internet these days and even queue up that uh, chorus of the prophets of Baal. If you don't happen to have the CD in your collection uh, or have gone to a live performance, but in any event, uh, uh, take a look and see if you can find a recording or even uh, some free uh, download or audio that you can hear this uh, chorus, the confrontation between Elijah and the priests of Baal. It is tremendous music as well as tremendous theological drama. I highly recommend it. <clears throat> yes, you can learn theology. You can even learn biblical theology from oratorio, from classical music. All right, now, what do you notice about the introduction of a new character to the life of David in verse 2? In verse 2 only, our new character is introduced without his name. Without his name. How is he defined? He is defined in terms of his wealth. Why is he introduced without his proper name? Why is he introduced simply in terms, at least initially in terms of his wealth? Because that's what defines him. He is defined by his wealth. He is defined by what is the most important thing to him. 
He is defined by the thing that he worships above all else. He is defined by his own invisible idol. He is defined by his money. Notice the parallel phrases. In Carmel, at the opening of verse 2, and in Carmel at the end of verse 2, and in between those parallels, our as yet unnamed character is defined as a man of business, very rich or literally great with wealth, with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and his business was flourishing as sheep shearing shows in Carmel. Verse 3 finally gives the man's name. Again, a parallel construction with verse 2. Notice, a man of my own, parallel to a man named Nabal. Our wealthy businessman has a name which suggests he is a slime ball. He is worthless. That is how his wife describes him in verse 25, or literally a son of Belial, as some of your margins may have it, meaning a dissolute individual, depraved and corrupt, a son of Belial. Modern business world, corporate and government alike, daily demonstrates that Nabal's flourish today. But Nabal has his curlish and evil business practice further cataloged by our author in verse 3. Nabal is, in short, a piece of work, a wealthy, sleazy, greasy, piece of work. The contrast between our wealthy livestock owner and his wife could not be more dramatic. His name means fool. Her name means my father rejoices. You will notice in that third verse that he frames his wife's name. Notice the expression, the man's name was, the woman was, the man was. As his character frames her character, so his name frames her name in the narrative. He is a fool, she is wise. She is beautiful, he is a Calebite. He is a dog, perhaps an intentional pun by our author on the Hebrew word kelev, which means dog. Nabal is a dog. Now you will observe that the occasion which inaugurates this drama is sheep shearing. Verse 2, once again parallel or duplicated in verse 4. And sandwiched between the dramatic occasion is or are the dramatic players. Between verse 2 and verse 4, we have the dramatis personae, Nabal, Abigail, and David. 
The sheep shearing in Carmel is going to fold all of our dramatis personae into the story. And you don't think that this narrator is a master craftsman. Oh, he is a literary genius, this fellow is. And he is drawing us by little frames and parallel duplications into the drama of his story, even as he draws us into the drama of the characters of his story. Now, in verses 2 to 4, our narrator has set the scene on location at Carmel near Maon. He has established the occasion of this drama, Sheep Shearing Festival. Now, I'm saying it's a sheep shearing festival because I'm borrowing from another sheep shearing uh, event, which is festival. In in fact, it is called festive uh, when it is recorded. It is the sheep shearing festival in 2 Samuel 13, verses 24 and 28. And so I am using that passage to reflect upon the festive character of this sheep shearing occasion. In other words, it's a time when there's a great deal of celebration as well as a great deal of hard work. Our narrator has introduced the leading players of his drama, David, Nabal, and Abigail. Now, in verse 5, he begins to unfold the plot of his drama. 1 Samuel 25 is a classic example of the familiar plot diagram that is outlined in many literature texts. Now, in case you can't remember that when you were in high school or college, the classic plot diagram goes this way. A story unfolds in terms of its plot uh, uh, unfolding from a rising action to a point of tension or climax to a relaxation or falling action to a stasis or conclusion. That's a classic paradigm, which is used to to help uh, literary students, students of literature, understand how a story works. It actually goes all the way back to an outline which is first proposed by Aristotle in his Poetics. Now, some modern approaches and uh, new approaches to uh, literature in our own day have suggested a modification of this traditional paradigm on the lines of sequence. They don't like this little kind of graphic um, uh, hump. What they want is a kind of causal sequence, sequential narrative action. And so if that be chosen as the uh, plot analysis model that we're going to use, Uh, We still have the essential features of a good story, initial action followed in sequence by increasing tension, succeeded in sequence by resolution of the tension, 
followed by a descending sequence of relaxation, followed finally sequentially by a conclusion. In other words, I can still take the modern language of sequential linkage in plot analysis and use the traditional vocabulary to express what is happening in the narrative paradigm. Now, as I said, 1 Samuel 25 is a perfect example of a narrative plot paradigm. It begins in the initial action with verses 5 to 22. That action rises through tension to a climactic resolution in verses 23 through 31. Descending from the resolution of the tension in verses 32 to 38, we come to a static conclusion in verses 39 to 44. In the process, our author provides us with three sub-scenes, three sub-scenes in the rising sequence. Sub-scene one, David's men go to Nabal, verses 5 to 13. Sub-scene number two, Nabal's men go to Abigail, verses 14 to 17. Sub-scene three, Abigail springs into action with Nabal's men, verses 18 to 22. The climax of the narrative is Abigail's long speech, verses 23 to 31. The point of relaxation is David's speech, followed by Nabal's fate, verses 32 to 38. And the conclusion is Abigail's fate, verses 39 to 44. Now, there are at least two assumptions behind the scenes, <clears throat> particularly behind scene one in verses 5 to 13. One of those assumptions has to do with the basis of David's request. The other has to do with the occasion for it. When we begin to read verses 5 to 13, there is an unwritten assumption or a presupposition behind David's request. But we have to read further on in the narrative in order to find out what that basis is. David, in fact, enunciates that as do, as do Nabal's young men in verses 16, 21, 15, etc. In other words, we know after the fact why David makes the request that he does in verses 5 to 13, because he has actually protected Nabal's property, including his flocks and sheep, as well as his herdsmen. That is the unwritten presupposition that lies behind David's Request. The second unwritten assumption is the occasion of this request. What brings this to a head? What is the occasion which causes David to come cap in hand to Nabal and ask for food and drink? The key is verse 8, where the New American Standard reads festive, though the margin, the literal Hebrew is the reading good. 
I've already pointed out that this sheep shearing occasion was festive from 2 Samuel 13, verses 24 and 28, when another sheep shearing festival is labeled festive in 2 Samuel. But I want you to note Nabal's remark in verse 11. Nabal's remark in verse 11 also reinforces the festival or the uh, a plethora of an abundance of food and drink during the time of sheep shearing, as well as his own drunken feast in verse 36. In other words, the sheep shearing time was party time. But work hard and get lots of food and drink after you work hard. That's the spirit behind this occasion. And David, taking advantage of the occasion, says, well, if there's going to be lots of food and drink flowing, then there's lots of abundance for my men who have been expending themselves in the defense of this man's wealth, his property, and his security. David, having done good to Nabal, is expecting Nabal to do good to him in return. Nabal, instead, consistent with his character, does evil to David by insulting him and showing no gratitude for the protection, the free protection. David hadn't charged any protection money for this, even though some modern scholars are saying David was running a protection uh, racket in the wilderness of Maon. So ridiculous are those idiot scholars. Nonetheless, there is always the politics of agenda working with biblical figures. Now, David has provided free protection. He has provided protection for Nabal's wealth and the source of his wealth, namely his employees. David has not only protected Nabal's property, he has protected the laborers, the employees who produce the benefit of that property. We are reminded that wealthy employers who are not solicitous of their employees or those who benefit their employees will eventually find themselves the object of a labor union movement in which their employees will demand just benefits, if not solicitous. And by the same token, labor unions who are not solicitous of their members but greedy of their union dues so as to line the pockets of labor leaders and politicians with wealth will find themselves the object of a right-to-work movement. Yes, the protection of your employees by being solicitous of them is a virtue and may, in fact, protect you from a great deal of grief from labor union bosses. Well, the good evil tandem is emphatic throughout this narrative. Good, in verse 3 of the margin, Abigail, literally, of good understanding. In verse 8, the word good is actually in the margin festive. And the word good occurs in verse 15, verse 21, verse 30, verse 31, and verse 36. The word evil occurs in verse 3, verse 17, verse 21, verse 26, 
verse 34, and two times in verse 39. Now, maybe you didn't have time to count them as I, as I uh, dictated them to you, but there are seven occasions of each word. Seven times the word good occurs and seven times the word evil occurs. Do you not think that this narrator is purposely, intentionally, completely contrasting good and evil? He even uses the perfect number to mention it each time. Seven times good, seven times evil. Do you get my point, readers? Good and evil. Characterization, good and evil behavior. It is good and evil which moves the players in our drama. Now, David's men approach Nabal and are rebuffed. They are scorned. They are insulted by a stingy, inhospitable, greedy old man. Notice the use of the rule of threes. Now, what is the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. Very good. Notice verse 6. How many shaloms? Three shaloms. How many kinds of provision in verse 11? Three, bread, water, meat. Now verse 13. Three girding of the swords, the rule of threes. Our narrator is triplicating certain features in his narrative, and he's doing it in order to draw our attention to the contrastive drama. The good shaloms are reversed by the evil girding on of the sword. Three shaloms matched by three girdings of the sword of death. I say evil girding on of the sword in verse 13 and return to the radical contrast between the David in chapter 24 and the David here in verse 13 of chapter 25. David does not appear like the David that we know. Three times over he does not appear like the David that we know from chapter 24. What is going on? Why is our narrator doing this? David had endured Saul's persecutions in that 24th chapter and refused to use his sword. Not three times, not two times, not even one time he refused to use his sword in chapter 24. But here David cannot endure Nabal's provocations and straps on his sword, straps on his sword to wreak vengeance, and even tells all of his followers to strap on their swords so that they can join him in wreaking vengeance. Oh, David, David, are you in truth just like Saul? You see, that is what our narrator is driving you to ask. Is David who had been chosen to be the opposite of Saul and ordained by God as God's very own heart, is he going to fall into the vortex of Saul's own paradigm? 
And so our narrator is going to pivotally juxtapose that in order to force you, the reader, to grapple with the issue. Even as David is going to be forced to grapple with the issue. As a woman and her donkey approach him. David, David, are you in truth just like Saul girding on your sword to kill, to murder those who offend you? Oh, David, David, sin is crouching at the door. Sin is crouching at the door, seeking to grasp you in its tentacles. Sin is crouching at the door, seeking to reach out and grasp you, David, and draw you down, down, down into the vortex of its own evil arena. The narrator is setting you up. The moral dilemma that is facing you in evaluating David. And so he places the contrast starkly in the hot-headed action of David in verse 13. All right, sub-scene number two in verses 14 to 17, a servant of Nabal goes to Abigail and lays out the whole fiasco. The extreme danger not only to Nabal, but also to all that belongs to Nabal, requires extreme measures. Would we condemn the servants as insubordinate for preserving their own lives? Would we? Would we judge Abigail as rebelling against her husband's headship when her life is threatened by death? Would we? If there is the necessity to remove injustice immediately in order to save life, would we stand around and dither about employee and female insubordination? If you had a woman in your church whose raging husband thrust a loaded 12-gauge shotgun into her pregnant belly and threatened to blow out her guts, would you tell that woman to submit to his rage, or would you tell that woman to run for her life whenever he puts that gun down? That's a rhetorical question. I don't think any of you would say she has to stand there and submit. Extreme danger warrants extreme action. And that is not the only example of a threat to a woman with a gun in my pastoral experience. And that is a true story. All that the servant reports confirms David's benevolent treatment of Nabal's shepherds. His protection of them night and day. His preservation of all that belonged to them and to Nabal. His goodness and kindness in interaction with them, especially no insults. Notice verse 15. Unlike Nabal, who is an insulter. David had said, verse 8, that Nabal could ask his young men for a report a report of his benevolence, his goodwill. 
one of the young men reports on David's benevolence. Verse 15. But not to Nabal, rather to Abigail. Does that young man know something? Indeed he does. Verse 17. He knows Nabal is a son of Belial, a worthless fellow, and that he has scorned, verse 14, he has scorned and insulted David and his goodness. And that young man knows that it is worthless to appeal to the worthless party. Rather, take the case to the party of good understanding, verse 3. The one rational enough to see the danger of the situation and act, and act immediately. Someone who will reciprocate David's shaloms by bringing shalom to the desperate situation. Which brings us to Abigail. Proactive, central character of 1 Samuel 25. She is the heroine of this drama. She will act, verses 18 to 22. And she will plead, verses 23 to 31. She will offer good for evil in order to dissuade David from evil instead of good. The good-evil tandem is all over this narrative. But it is not moralistic good-evil parallelism. What Nabal refused... Abigail provides and more, and she provides it with a gift donkey going before. Notice her strategy. Gift first, and then the giver. If David is to use his sword, he'll have to first wade through the gift, then the defenseless giver. I will surprise him with food and drink, and then I will surprise him with myself and my supplication. I am hoping my good will avert his evil design. And she arranges it in such a shrewdly strategic way as to get the best benefit out of her possible surprise advantage. Our narrator has brought us to the climax of his narrative. He even frames his heroine's role by the urgency imperative to her strategy. She hurried in verse 18. She hurried in verse 23, same Hebrew verb in both cases. If the rising tension Building to death by David's sword is to be relaxed. She must hurry to delay him. And she must hurry to persuade him. To persuade him to relent. Her initial actions bring back the rule of threes. Recall David's threefold shalom in verse 6. Reversed by his threefold sword girding, verse 13. Now, to slow or even stop this thrice-over slaughter, Abigail first dismounts from her donkey, 
Second, she falls on her face before David. And third, she bows herself to the ground. If the sword of David is to be unleashed, it will needs be unleashed first on her with her face to the ground, bearing her neck in humble prostration at his feet. Ah, the rule of threes. Notice how she proceeds in this poignant and climactic speech. She begins with the offense, for David has been unjustly slighted. He has been scorned unjustly. He has been unjustly insulted for his benevolence, his goodwill. She begins with the guilt of the offense. She begins with her husband Nabal because he is foremost in David's sword-girded mind. And she diverts David's focus from Nabal to herself by assuming the blame unto herself. On her face, at his feet, with David stopped in his tracks, she declares, let the blame be mine alone. I will stand surety for the fault. Notice how she proceeds. She begins with Nabal and his fault, begs to assume it to herself, and proceeds to present her case for the folly of Nabal, whose name will be the focus of the next two verses, verses 25 and 26. The strategy of her lengthy speech is first her husband, and in that she honors him, albeit ironically, yet shrewdly. Verses 24 to 27. And then, notice verse 28. She once again prays forgiveness, only this time her focus is on David. And for the balance of what has become an amazing rhetorical tour de force in this speech of hers, she elaborates upon the Lord's role, the Lord's role in the life of David. Now, let me summarize the pattern. Verse 24, she takes the blame and continues with Nabal's role, verses 25 to 27. Then, verse 28, she pleads for the blame to be forgiven. Notice, 24 and 28 are parallel, the forgiveness of the blame. And she continues in verse 28 with David's role in verses 28 to 31. Those are the foci of her attention. Her husband first, and then... David, the potentially marauding Saul-like. Nor is this artifice on her part. She genuinely knows the character of her husband and placates David with his foolish nature. But fools are to be left to the Lord. Fools are to be left to the Lord. Vengeance is his, and he will repay fools for folly. Only let not your hand play the fool, verse 26. Ah, she strikes at the nerve. She strikes right at the nerve, does she not? 
Let not your hand be like Nabal's foolishness. Let your hand not be the hand of a fool avenging yourself by shedding blood, foolishly shedding the blood of a fool. The living Lord by whose soul by whose life your soul lives, you are no fool, David. Let no death be in your hand, but let what God has granted you also be granted to a fool like Nabal. Let him live. Let him live and let God the Lord deal with him. For it is the Lord of life who restrains you from shedding blood foolishly. What a masterpiece this is. What a master rhetorician this woman is. What a master of wisdom this woman is. She goes to the very heart of David's anger. You would be just like Nabal, rash, contemptuous, regarding the life of others as worthless. You would be just like Nabal. But the living Lord has held you back from assuming a character the very opposite of what lives in you. The living Lord God has restrained you from dealing out death as Saul seeks to deal out to you, as Saul dealt out to the priests at Nob, as death seeks to make you its ally, a copycat killer. Let the life of the Lord stop you, pause you, turn you, convert you, Let life, not death, be in your hand and accept this gift, this life-sustaining gift at my hand. Sit down and eat and drink, David, and let your life be refreshed from my. But Abigail is not finished. She's not finished playing upon the theme of life as it draws David into its arena. Nor is she finished uniting that life in David with the life of the Lord God. Which brings us to verse 29. And a break to relax the tension. Take five. Hi. Congratulations. Oh, you too, Auntie. (laughs) Or I should say, auntie. 
I'm a grandpa for the fourth time. Yeah, on my mother and father's 70th anniversary day. My father is no longer alive, but uh, it's a kind of interesting that my, my son and daughter-in-law gave birth to a son yesterday, and it happened to be on October 21st, which is the day my mother and father were married, 70 years ago. We have come to verse 29. Crucial, powerful, dramatic, compelling verse 29. Now, as you look at your English text, I want you to focus on the clause which is sandwiched by David's enemies. Between those who rise up and pursue David and those enemies whom God will sling out lie these words, according to the New American Standard Translation. Then the life, or the Hebrew word is literally soul, then the life or soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. Now that phrase, bundle of the living, includes the Hebrew word ha-chaim. Chaim. You fiddler on the roof fans, are you not all fiddler on the roof fans? You will recognize Chaim, Lechaim, to life, which is joyously sung and danced at the engagement of Tevye's daughter Zaitel to Laser Wolf. Great fun, great theater, great movie, just a wonderful experience. So if you've never seen it, go get it. Pardon? No, it's the engagement to Laser Wolf. Go back and sit down. (laughs) Don't ever get a nebby daughter. (laughs) All right. Is this the living bundle of the Lord God? Or is it the bundle of the living one, namely the Lord God? Or is it bundled up in the life of the Lord? Now you see there are all potential variations and paraphrases of this Hebrew clause. And since the word bundle here refers also to a pouch or to a bag, even a treasure pouch, 
or a treasure bag is Abigail reflecting upon God's redemptive history with David. The word she uses for sling at the end of this verse is the very same Hebrew word used for sling in the David and Goliath narrative. My wheels start to turn. No, the word for pouch here is not the same Hebrew word used in 1 Samuel 17, the David and Goliath narrative, but the word for pouch here is used elsewhere for a bag to put stones into. Mm. Mm, My wheels are turning twice as fast now. Is Abigail rehearsing ever so subtly David's life bound up with the living God in the valley of Elah when his sling gave him life over death because God treasured him in his very own pouch? David's life bundled up with the life of God. That confrontation was not between David and a fool. It was between David and a blasphemer. A blasphemer of the living God, the hosts of the living God, and the people of the living God. The Lord God avenged himself in that space in between. The Lord God will avenge David by dealing with Nabal, in his own way, but not in shedding blood without cause. David, this is not a just cause for killing Nabal, an insult, a personal affront. Death for such scorn is not proportionate to the offense. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Life for life. Your life has not been taken. You dare not take life for an insult. The punishment must fit the crime. It must not be more excessive than the crime. Proportionate punishment. Not excessive punishment. For your life, David... Your life is hidden in the life of God. You are bundled up with the living Lord, and in him you live. Do you see it? 1 Samuel twenty-five twenty-nine is the Old Testament equivalent of Colossians 3, 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. 1 Samuel 25, 29 is the Old Testament equivalent of Colossians 3, 3. Your life is hidden in God. Thus, David, thus every believer in David's Lord. Abigail understands. She understands the union with the Lord motif, and she declares that union to David 
and David stops. David stops. His union with his Lord, his living union with his living Lord stops him, stops him from dealing out death instead of life. The narrative climax has brought the easing of the narrative tension. We breathe a sigh of relief with David, with Abigail. And David, David breaks forth into a doxology. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The expression of praise to the Lord God of Israel frames David, David's response to Abigail in verses 32 and 34. Notice the symmetrical balance of the doxological statement. And the center of that praise is the restraint which the Lord has effected through Abigail upon David's vow, his rash vow, to deliver death for slight and so spill blood without just cause. David accepts Abigail as the substitute, the substitute for her husband. In being restrained from harming her, David has been restrained by God from harming Nabal, verse 34. David even commends her for the urgency with which she hurried with which she hurried to avert the evil he so rashly, so rashly, so foolishly intended. And out of his doxology, David pronounces shalom. You see it? He pronounces shalom upon Abigail. The peace that he extended to Nabal, the peace which he had, which Nabal had spurned, that peace falls upon Nabal's wife. Our narrative has now descended through the falling action of the plot, through the resolution and relaxation of the narrative tension to the conclusion. Nabal is not only a curlish fool, he is a drunken curlish fool, for a fool and his liquor are not soon parted. But when Nabal's wine has parted from him, then a worse thing befalls him. His heart becomes as a stone. The sequence of his heart dying here before he is struck dead, verse 37 followed by verse 38, suggests a stroke. A stroke rather than a heart attack that he became as a stone would be equivalent to full paralysis which may result from a massive brain hemorrhage, death then comes subsequently, as it does here. Verse 38 details God's vengeance on Nabal, not David. Verse 39 details David's acknowledgement. Notice the doxology again, blessed be the Lord. Verse 39 details David's acknowledgement that God has avenged the reproach of evil, and turned it upon Nabal's head. The Lord has also kept David from rash sin, from evil, as he says in that verse, an implicit acknowledgement that God works through instrumental means, the instrument of God here being a godly woman. 
a brief comment on the making of rash vows. Rash vows even made in the name of the Lord are not bounding, binding and do not glorify God. David learns that here. And all of us need to be aware that if we swear a rash promise before God, a promise to do something that is wrong in his eyes, he will not bless us for doing it. So don't make precipitate promises before God and bind your conscience. For if you do bind your conscience to something God forbids you to do, God forbids uh, David to murder because he has said thou shalt not kill. And if David goes ahead and does it, God is not pleased with that. Don't make rash vows. And if you do make rash vows that are displeasing in the eyes of God, then don't keep them because it's better not to keep them than to keep them and displease God even more. As David would have done here. Now, if there is a concluding downside to this narrative, it is the revelation that David begins to construct his harem. The polygamous union with Abigail and Ahinoam is the start of a rampant acquisition of multiple wives, an acquisition which will bring grief and even murderous adultery into the soul, into the life of David. Our narrator foreshadows the lust of David in his concluding lust for multiple unions. Tragedy is stalking David's life even as his life has been revealed to be bundled with God's own life. Is there justification in David's taking another wife in the light of Michael's adultery for allowing herself to be traded to another like a pawn in a political tussle? Michael adulterates the bond she entered into with David. So where is her vaunted love for David now? But daddy told me to. Do you obey daddy or do you obey God? You are only too willing to obey daddy because it suits your purposes to be joined to another, not your legitimate husband. Suits your purposes, Michael, which purposes will become clear when you once again share David's bed. We're going to learn an awful lot about you, Michael, as we continue to see your character unfold in this drama. And none of it is complimentary. We have underscored the union of David's life with the life of the Lord God. He is in the state or condition of union with God. His united life indicates his participation or identification with the person and work of the Lord. We may call this the indicative state, the state of his life being hidden with God or bundled with the life of God. That indicative state behaves in an ethical manner. That is, the life of God to which David is joined demonstrates itself in the behavior, the ethical or moral behavior which David displays. In chapter 24, David's union with the life of the Lord displays itself in his ethical behavior. He spares Saul's life. 
David understands that his union with the Lord places certain moral obligations upon him. Certain imperatives are bound up with his indicative state. Being in the Lord as his life, David is morally obliged. He is under the divine imperative to preserve life. Thou shalt not kill is the imperative that flows out of, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage. I saved you, indicative, do not kill imperative. The heavenly Lord or Savior draws the life united to him into a moral reflection of his heavenly character. You shall not kill because murder is incompatible with the life of heaven. With my life, says the Lord, I have bundled your life into mine, the living God. Therefore, it is imperative. You are commanded. You are under moral obligation not to murderously take away life. The divine and heavenly imperative is joined to the divine and heavenly indicative. The eschatological character of godly behavior is anchored in the eschatological character of divine redemption. David's life, redeemed by the life of the Lord, is to demonstrate the Lord's life, the Lord's heavenly life in his moral behavior. Challenge to David's union with the Lord in chapters 24 and 25 is the ethical mandate, the moral imperative not to murder. Will David's imperative actions match his indicative state? In chapter 24, his indicative determines his imperative, but with a twinge of conscience. In chapter 25, his indicative is temporarily suppressed by an immoral imperative. Will David in chapter 25 be David as he was in chapter 24? And will he not be as he denies? Will he not be as he denies his indicative state? As he straps on his sword as he prepares to repudiate, to sin against the Lord's imperative. Will he not be in his indicative state? God preserves him from this folly by the intervention of a wise and godly woman. And David is grateful, grateful to God for restraining his immoral imperative by reminding him of his indicative state, my life bound up in the bundle of the living with the Lord. But the ongoing challenge of the indicative and the imperative will provide a paradigm from which to judge David's soul, his indicative state, by his moral behavior, his imperative acts. The ongoing challenge of the indicative an imperative in the career, the ongoing career of King David. I conclude chapter 25 by a note from the New Testament. This indicative imperative relation is the key to the ethics of the New Testament scriptures. 
Christ's ethics show this paradigm, this indicative imperative relationship. Paul's ethics show this paradigm, the indicative imperative relationship. The whole New Testament is full of this pattern, eschatological union with Christ, eschatological imperatives to obey out of the union of Christ, his commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Indicative state, if you love me, you love me, imperative, keep my commandments. And that is an indissoluble bond, just like a marriage bond. Indissoluble bond. Where Jesus says, if you do not keep my commandments, then you do not love me. Simple as that. The heavenly state, the heavenly arena, is the origin and foundation of all moral behavior, all moral ethical behavior which is pleasing to the living God. For is it not obvious that the saved in heaven will behave with heaven's moral character? David could not have murdered Nabal were Nabal in heaven. He cannot murder Nabal while Nabal is on the earth because his life is bundled up with the living Lord God. And Abigail, Abigail reminds David of this and David blesses her, blesses her for reminding him of it. Couple of short questions. Ling? Um, I'm rather curious about Abigail's speech. Um, it's very similar to 2 Samuel 7 regarding the Davidic covenant. Uh, she uh, seems to be talking about the Lord making an enduring house for David um, prior to that actual covenant. So is she prophetically speaking? Uh, I think one of the things that's missing here is the paternal filial relationship, which is the key to 2 Samuel 7. Um, That is not acknowledged here, though there are motifs that do repeat themselves. And so consequently, I think she is at the heart of the union with God motif, though she's not necessarily at the heart of the relational paternal filial uh, dynamic in that motif. So that was what I would say would distinguish them, though there are anticipations of the language here. Any other short question? Yeah, let me pursue part of that point. So when, when David says to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. Could we infer from that that the God has also put words in her mouth to say to David? Um, I, 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 I'm thinking that's probably a little too strong. I, I can't say it's not impossible, but at the same thing, I don't think she has the role of prophetess here. Uh, was there a, a short one over here? Robert? Yeah, um, it seems to me that David, I can't find the spot, but he said he was going to go out and kill all the males 
Yes. And she's female, and she brought her ma- mates with her. Correct. There's one more obstacle thrown in his path. Good. Good observation. Not going to make war on defenseless women, potentially? <laughs> and she- well, that's not what he was after anyway. Right. Males. All right. I'm going to go on because I want to complete uh, Chapter 26. And if I have time afterwards, I will address any further questions. Now, we uh, open up Chapter 26, and we immediately think deja vu. Deja vu. We have been here before in Chapter 24. So the duplications that are uh, parallel between Chapter 24 and 26 uh, look, make us look for a pattern, a literary or narrative pattern. Now, this duplication bothers the liberal commentators because they regard this second incident where David spares Saul's life as fraudulent and contrived. They regard it as evidence that the <coughs> book of Samuel has been artificially assembled from collections of different editorial stories And this one got in without the uh, final editor being smart enough to realize that he had a duplication. And so this duplication is indication of the fact that it is not historically true. This event in chapter 26 for most liberal commentators did not happen at all. And it's due to poor editing. All right. I just want you to be aware of that uh, foolish dismissal of the duplication. And let's take a look at why our narrator does, in fact, duplicate and duplicate historically in terms of objective historicity, the two events, chapter 24 and chapter 26. You will notice in the first verse of chapter 26 that we have language or phrases that are exact duplicates of language in chapter 23, verse 19, particularly with reference to the wilderness of Ziph, where David is hiding. And that verse in 23.19 is an anticipation of the scene in chapter 24. So 26.1 matches 23.19, which anticipates the narrative in chapter 24. Verse 2 of chapter 26 is also a verse that has phrases similar to the language of chapter 24, verse 2. With this difference... In chapter 24, it is the rocks of the ibex or the rocks of the wild goat, which is in the wilderness of Ziph. And that forms the bracket around Saul and his 3,000. Here in chapter 26, the bracket around Saul and his 3,000 is not the rocks of the wild goat, but it is the wilderness of Ziph itself. So there is a difference between the two narratives in that uh, precise location. Next verse, verse 3, 26.3, once again picks up phrases which are found in Second and First Samuel 23.19, which we mentioned earlier with verse 1. Once again, the parallels between the language are an anticipation of the pursuit which will break out in chapter 24. But verse 4 of chapter 26 is a radical break. It is a radical break with the drama of chapter 24 or of the anticipation of the drama in 24 in chapter 23. You will notice who sends the spies here. Here in chapter 26, it is David who sends out the spies 
keeping tabs on Saul. What had happened in chapter 24? It was Saul who sent out the spies to keep tabs on David. Chapter 23, verses 22 and 23, and chapter 24, verse 1. Now, the radical break in 26, the tables have been turned. The hunted, David, has become the hunter, David. And the hunter, Saul, has become the hunted, Saul. The reverse is a dramatic shift. These are not exact duplicate chapters. There is something else going on in the narrator's mind as he records this story. Therefore, we ask the question, what does the reversal indicate in 26.4? It indicates the progression of the upward spiral of David's career. Progressively ascending virtuously, honorably, ethically from 24 to 25 and now to 26, though with a tinge of conscience and the sobering realization that a rash vow is not part of a life hidden with the Lord in God. David is ascending in his virtue and in his honor, but he is ascending as he's growing in the knowledge and understanding of the Lord and his goodness and reflecting the goodness of God in the mercy he shows to others, Saul and Nabal behind him. Thus, a literary or narrative pattern of duplication in comparison of chapter 24 with chapter 26 indicates an expanded an augmented narrative drama. This is not rote duplication. It is not rote parallelism. This is a drama in chapter 26, which is expansive and progressive. David is growing in his life, bundled in the Lord God. All right, notice chapter 24 and the wilderness of Ziph with David sparing Saul, though urged to kill him as the hunted. Chapter 25, location at Maon. David spares Nabal, though he vowed to kill him as the insulted. Now chapter 26, once again in the wilderness of Ziph, David spares Saul, though urged to kill him as the hunted. The structural paradigm outlines the narrative progression. So we have noted this larger paradigm of parallel duplication. We shall call this larger paradigm of chapter 25, sandwiched between 24 and 26, the macro structure. Now let's look inside chapter 26 to the micro structure. 1 Samuel 26 abounds with duplications and parallels. I want to point out some of them, but I'm not going to exhaust all of them. I just want to point out some that I think are much more impressive and uh, lay down the foundation for a pattern which goes through this entire chapter. Verse 1, the Ziphites came to Saul. Verse 5, David came to To Saul, precise duplication. The bracket 
Round verse 1 and 5 encloses the movement of our players. The movement of our players so as to arrive at the scene of the action. Saul's camp in the wilderness of Ziph. Ziphites came and David came to Saul's camp in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, there's also an element of irony here. There's an element of ironic contrast. David's spies find Saul here in chapter 26. Saul's spies could not find David in chapter 24. So our narrator is additionally progressively unfolding the drama in terms of the differentiation between David and Saul in those respective chapters. Now, look at verse 5 by itself. Saul camped. Beginning of the verse, end of the verse. Saul camped, or camped around him. Saul understood. Saul camped, camped around Saul. Notice here that the narrator circles the verse with the Hebrew word for camped. He circles the verse. And at the center of the circle, surrounded by the camp, surrounded by those on the circumference of the circle, Saul lying inside the circle. And you say, this guy can't write? Mm, I've got news for you. All right, verse 7. Notice the sequence in the last clause of that seventh verse. Abner followed by the people. Now, look at verse 14. Notice the reverse sequence in that opening clause. The people followed by Abner. The reverse parallel is indicative of the reverse situation. That is, the reverse situation in which the circle of Saul or the circle around Saul finds itself. It has been reversed by David penetrating it. Verse 12, David takes a spear in the jug of water from beside Saul's head. Verse 16, David repeats that he took the spear in the jug of water from beside Saul's head. The parallel here underscores how close David crept even to the capital point of Saul's life, Saul's body, even to the point of where a capital blow could have been delivered and Saul would have been immediately dispatched. Is that what Abishai wants to do when he says he'll pin him to the ground? Does he want to do what Jael does with Sisera and nail him through the head? Hmm. Verse 10, David says, as the Lord lives. Verse 16, David says, as the Lord lives. Notice the parallel oaths are underscoring the interplay of life and death. This is once again a decision of whether death or life are going to prevail. The oath confirms that interplay twice over. Now, verses 18 through 20. We begin by the outer perimeter. 
verse 18, the word hunt. Now, in some of your Bibles, New American Standard included, they translate the word pursue. But I'm going to parallel it with the word hunt in verse 20. That appears like uh, in the phrase hunt a partridge. It is the same Hebrew word in verse 20 as it is in verse 18. And so I'm going to say that the New American Standard has mistranslated. I don't often say that about the New American Standard, but they have mistranslated because they haven't seen the parallel with the Hebrew verbal pattern. So hunt in verse 18, hunt in verse 20, and in verse 19, the, the verse begins now therefore, and in verse 20, it should also be translated now therefore. The New American Standard isn't consistent here again. It is the same Hebrew word. What we have is a short chiasm. A, hunt, verse 18. B, now therefore, verse 19. B prime, verse 20. Now therefore, A prime, verse 20, hunt again. The parallels here frame David's plea. His plea not to be driven from the land of the Lord's inheritance into a pagan nation away from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord. There's that presence motif, that presence of the Lord theme, which we have noted is so precious to David, his life in the presence of the Lord, his life present before the face of the Lord. The reversal here, or the parallel here, is to underscore the fact that David was not, does not want to be disenfranchised of the Lord's rich presence. Finally, verse 21 and 22, verse 21, behold, verse 22, behold, the parallel is antithetical. Saul, like Nabal, a fool in seeking David's life. David, unlike Saul, a life preserver. Now, I want to diagram the relationship between these two chapters in a graphic way in order to demonstrate what I think is under underneath the narrative duplication, the narrator's expansion, his progressive unfolding of a motif uh, in this overall drama. Okay, <clears throat> David in chapter 24 <clears throat> uh, finds himself in an arena that Saul penetrates. So that we have David and Saul in a cave proximate, very close to one another in chapter 24. In chapter 26, we have Saul in a location into which David penetrates. So that here we have Saul plus David. Now we might think that these two chapters, because of this basic narrative pattern, are mirror images of one another. That is, they are a, a, a common reflection of the same narrative drama until we realize that here David is not near Saul. He is on a mountain distant 
from Saul, completely separated from him. And in fact, this reversal of proximate, distant location reinforces the fact that this narrative is the last time David will ever see Saul alive. It is the last time David will ever speak to Saul. Notice what the narrator has done. This is not a mirror duplication. This is a progressive drama unfolding to the separation and permanent estrangement between David and Saul. From far away on a mountain, David shouts back to Saul that he has spared his life. It is foreshadowing the fact that David will not see Saul again. Saul will not see David again. Any relationship between them is now permanently broken. And Saul will pursue his career to the witch of Endor and the gate of death at the Mount Gilboa and the gate of death where he will be tacked up as a corpse. But David, whose life is bundled with the living God, will go from strength to strength in life before the face in the presence of his Lord. This narrative symmetry is unto dramatic dramatic uh, emphasis that we have reached the point in the Saul-David narrative when they will not meet again and they will be permanently distant from one another until Saul dies. Now, a couple of incidental things here in chapter 26. We have some new characters in this chapter. In verse 6, we have Ahimelech, the Hittite. Where is the Hittite nation? On a map, where is the Hittite nation? What country today? If you were going to the land of the Hittites today, what land would you be going to today? Pardon? Nope. Turkey. Turkey. Modern day Turkey is the ancient empire of the Hittites. And in fact, a very important and powerful empire in the second millennium BC. So Ahimelech the Hittite comes from modern day Turkey. Do you know any other famous Hittite in the Old Testament? Uriah the Hittite. And there are some commentators who argue that Ahimelech here is another name for Uriah the Hittite. I don't think so, but nonetheless, that is out there. Uh, he comes as one of David's mighty men, obviously, for David has, uh, was using mercenaries from other nations who had uh, uh, enlisted in his rebel band. All right, now the second individual in verse 6 is Abishai, and he is described as the son of 
Zeruiah. Zeruiah. It's not Zeruiah, it's Zeruiah. Okay? Who is Zeruiah? She is David's sister from 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, which makes Abishai David's what? Okay? David is his uncle. Abishai is his nephew. Very good. All right. Now, Abishai also has a brother mentioned in this verse. The brother is Joab. So, Zeruiah has at least two sons, Abishai and Joab. But she actually has another one. There are three brothers in this family. Who is the third? He's not here. He will meet him in 2 Samuel. It is Asahel. Asahel, Joab, and Abishai are all three brothers, all three nephews of David. They will all play a major part in the unfolding narrative. Okay, now Abner in this verse. We've already met Abner. Who is Abner? What is his role? Yes, he is Saul's general commander-in-chief, correct. He is Saul's general-in-chief of the army, and he will also play a very important role in the unfolding career of David as we move into 2 Samuel. With the exception of Ahimelech, we shall meet all of these characters again. Now, one minor observation on verse 22. Verse 22 of chapter 26. You will notice there that David responds to Saul by saying, let one of the young men come over and take it from me. Why? Why does he say, you send your man over to get it back? Because what? Position of power. No, this isn't a power play. It's not a power trip on David's part. True, but why does he even ask him to come? Why doesn't he, David, send it over with one of his men? That would put his man in danger. Exactly. What does he suspicious Saul will do? Kill him or take him as a hostage, right? No, I'm not going to give you another piece of meat to use against me, right? Exactly. David doesn't trust him. And so that's the reason he says, you send your man here. All right, you learn any you learn any strategic uh, 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 things out of that? You got any logistics to it? Don't send your man into the camp of the enemy as if he's going to be, a, be taken hostage. Don't do it. Let him come and get you. Make them take the step. That way you don't venture innocent life. Shrewd. Shrewd act on David's part. But there's more shrewdness in David to come, as we shall see next week. Chapter 27 and 28. All right. Now, 
there were some questions. Uh, as you know, chapter 28 is on the story of the Witch of Endor. Uh, we actually have in our midst tonight the author of a very famous sermon on that te- text, which has been published by K. Ricks, Bill Wielinger. And if you go to krugstoke.com, you can read it, and I commend it to you. Whether I agree with Bill on everything, you'll find out next week. But nonetheless, that sermon is superb, and I would urge you to take a look at it. It will be greatly edified by reading through it. And I thank Bill for it again. Any questions about tonight? Yes. Scott? On, on, the, on the issue you were dealing with polygamy and David, yes. since there's many people who think that God's requirement for single spouses of one and one, one was in some sense relaxed from the patriarchal period through the coming of Christ, how would uh, you deal with a couple things? One is um, with uh, Jacob uh, having Rachel being given Leah, and then having Rachel, and if there's a rebuke there implicitly with him with two wives. And then when Nathan says to David uh, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 7, uh, verse 8, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel. And if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Almost sounds like God gave him these many wives, and therefore, when you think of the next statement, if this had been too little, I would have given you more. It seems to imply perhaps even more wives, perhaps not. Let me deal with that one first. I don't think he's suggesting that I would have given you more wives necessarily, as he would have given him more uh, prestige, more honor, more dignity. He would have elevated him uh, beyond the humiliation that's coming uh, as a result of the uh, Bathsheba and Uriah incident. So I don't think the parallelism necessarily argues I would have given you more wives. Uh, back to Jacob, or the whole theme of multiple wives in the Old Testament, patriarchal period, monarchical period with Solomon and so on. Uh, <clears throat> the pattern of the garden is the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the beginning it was not so. Man, one man, one woman. That is the paradigm. And where that paradigm is abused, it's an abuse of God's own revealed will. And consequently, where he may tolerate it, he tolerates it without approving it. He simply tolerates it as he has tolerated other uh, 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 hardness of heart or other iniquity for his own purposes. But he's not, therefore, legitimating it. There's not a unique toleration that's occurring in that patriarchal period. It's a kind of toleration that... Is, no, I, I don't. I think I think uh, we are recognizing the lust of the flesh in that patriarchal period, just as we recognize that lust of the flesh in every area where polygamy abounds. And that is not the norm. That is not God's endorsed norm. He uh, he allows it, but he does not endorse it. He's not commanding it per se. So would it be parallel in that sense for Paul when when he, when a man is converted who has already got two wives? He tolerates that in the church. He doesn't make him put away the wife, but he says, but the elder must be a husband of one wife. Correct. Okay. Correct. So the polygamist could not serve as an official in the New Testament church, but he's breaking the norm. Yeah, it's a good thing there weren't elders in the church at that time, right? So I don't have to worry about that question. Anything else? Yes, Ben? I just found it interesting that Nabal, that it was mentioned of Nabal, that he was of the house of Caleb. And Caleb was such a, 
Remarkable yes, uh, uh, the the descent through the Calebites there is obviously reversed in terms of Joshua's friend Caleb, because that Caleb certainly doesn't have the character of a fool as this Calebite does. But that term, as I mentioned before, Kelev here could be actually a pun, a pun on the word Hebrew word for dog, and they may be playing on that. It's not just he's a Calebite; he's a dog-like Calebite. Lane, one more. Um, yeah, on that question of uh, Mabel being a Calebite, um, is this sort of God restraining his hand against his Israelite brothers until, I mean, I don't think he, there's no war in um, within Israel like Saul is killing the priest of Nob, uh, but we don't see this with David until Absalom, I think. Uh, well, he will go out and conquer his enemies in the early chapters of Second Samuel as he ascends from Hebron to Jerusalem, yes. So he, he's going to unstrap his sword in uh, conquering the enemies of Israel as he takes even Jerusalem, or Joab takes it for him. But go ahead. Okay. Um, because, I mean, just in just a couple chapters, he's going to slaughter the Amalekites. Um and, I mean, it just seems like there are a few parallels there uh, with the Nabal story. And so I'm wondering, if, is the difference, is the contrast, the fact that Nabal is an Israelite and these are the Amalekites that he is um, given sort of a holy... Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any threat to, uh, to, to others involved. Uh, so I think that's the difference. He is defending Israel against an Amalekite invasion incursion. So this is legitimate national self-defense or legitimate defense of innocent people. Uh, and uh, with, with Nabal, uh, you know, he, he is just precipitously being provoked into another act. And he spares him rightly because he should not have been provoked to do it. Okay, well, have a good weekend.